We turn our attention now to a very real problem, sexual harassment in academic settings. When people raise the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace, it's common for persons of all political persuasions to be somewhat dismissive or judgmental, thinking it isn't really as serious a problem as it's made out to be. Yet, as we'll learn, sexual harassment is real and could have very personal and emotional consequences for those involved. Moreover, it's not just limited to a cubicle corporate setting. It also extends to the academic setting where power relations among professors, grad students, and undergrads are never equitable. Joining us to talk about sexual harassment is our guest, Kirsten Kwanbeck. She is the executive director of the UCI Office of Equal Opportunity and Diversity. And uh, how did I do on your name this morning? Pretty good, Kirsten Kwanbeck. Thanks for having me, Jarrett. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. We've got for listeners, we've got a little bit of a uh, uh, heating, air conditioning, ventilation squeak. So if you hear that in the background, just uh, just try to ignore it. Try to consider it part of the uh, the ambience. Uh, well, why don't we get into uh, into the the questions here? Let's, uh, if you can, tell our listeners. Um, try to dispel some of the myths. What exactly is sexual harassment and what is not sexual harassment? Absolutely. Great question. You know, people are confused, I think, about uh, what their conduct in the workplace and in this classroom uh, might be subjected to. Let me just tell you that sexual harassment is about a sexualized environment. It's about making your work or school uh, or even volunteer job a sexualized, uncomfortable place. It's unwelcome conduct that's sexual in nature, that is either severe, one really bad thing, or it's pervasive. It's a bunch of little stuff that adds up over time. And it creates a hostile working or learning environment for you, not just for you, but for the reasonable person standing in your shoes. Now, the word hostile, when we talk about a hostile work environment, that's always... uh, that's always problematic because you often don't know you know, how the other person is feeling. If I say, boy, I really like that necklace you're wearing, uh, is that an unwanted uh, sexual comment or is that creating a, a hostile work environment? So uh, is there some kind of barometer? As it is. To- <laughs> That's very, it is. It's tricky. It is tricky. And I would say, you know, a comment like that, gee, I really like that necklace, is probably not going to land you in difficulty. If you were to say, wow, love the way that looks on you, and you were to say it repeatedly to me, um, and you were to say it in the university context, somehow, whether we're here, uh, we're at your volunteer position, we're at your job, we're in my classroom, um, something like that, and it was creating an unwelcome situation for me. I couldn't concentrate on my job um, because you made these repeated comments about my appearance, or I couldn't uh, study or get my work done. and the reasonable person standing in my shoes would have said, wow, looking at that, I would have felt uncomfortable too. Then I think we would have created a hostile environment. But for the most part, one-time occurrences, one-time comments, one-time requests for dates don't land you in trouble. So um, so one can ask for, for a date. I mean, we know that office romances are, uh, you know, most people these days are going to meet their uh, significant others uh, in, in a workplace setting. Um, how, do, how does one broach that topic? Great question. We spend a lot of time here at the university, whether we're working here, going to school here. We spend most of our waking hours, many of us, right here. So the people that we meet, the relationships that we make, become valuable and important and sometimes intense um, and sometimes romantic or sexual. So we need to be cautious about the relationships that we entered in certain ways. 
There's no university rule that says that you can't date or have a romantic or sexual relationship with those people that you meet here at the institution, except for in two cases. One, if you are currently teaching, evaluating, grading somebody, uh, and you're subject to the academic personnel manual, you are prohibited from entering into that romantic or sexual relationship. Again, somebody that you're currently teaching, grading, evaluating, you sit on their PhD committee, something like that, you are prohibited. Otherwise, if you are in a staff supervisory position or you're supervising other students, um, you would be considered to be in a conflict of interest situation if you were to enter a romantic or sexual relationship, and the university asks that you alleviate one of those uh, one of those conflicts. So either choose the relationship or figure out a way that you're not the person in charge of that other person anymore. And I think you just hit, uh, hit a key word. You know, you were talking before about uh, a reasonable person or one would think, and uh, I gave a lecture last week on uh, the history of obscenity law. And, of course, I, I focus on the, uh, the famous uh, quote from Justice Potter Stewart that, you know, pornography, I know it when I see it. And, of course, that's got to be one of the worst legal, uh, you know. <laughs> but most famous. <laughs> but, but most famous, of course. Um, but at the same time, it seems that sexual harassment isn't a case of I know it when I see it because uh, one of the things that's often uh, overlooked when we talk about sexual harassment, when we talk about society in general, uh, is the... Uh, unequitable distribution of power. Mm. And so could you talk about the importance of power relationships mm -hmm. in helping to identify uh, sexual harassment from, say, a nice compliment or, hey, would you like to go get a cup of coffee during lunch? I think, I think the power relationships we have here on campus, um, whether it's between faculty and their students, between staff supervisors and the people that supervise, or even between students who are, uh, let's say, a graduate student who's supervising some undergraduates in some project or lab, um, I think those relationships blur that first component of sexual harassment, which is really about welcomeness. I think folks who are in a power differential um, people who are on the lower end of that are maybe a little bit less likely to negatively respond to some otherwise unwelcome conduct. So when you were to ask me uh, for maybe uh, dates repeatedly, I might not be honest with you initially about not wanting to go out with you. I might sort of put you off because you're my supervisor or because you're my professor or because you're my TA. Um, so I think it blurs that first unwelcomeness element. Remember, sexual harassment is about unwelcome sexual conduct. That's either repeated or severe and creates that hostile environment. Um, so I think when we're talking about um, consensual relations and those relationships that are good, that are not necessarily sexual and harassment, um, we get blurred into what is sexual harassment because people aren't able to be forthcoming because of the power relationship. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI and Irvine, this is Justice or Just Us. We're talking about sexual harassment and we're joined uh, by, it's Kirsten, there you go, uh, Kirsten uh, Kwanbeck from the uh, Office of Equal Opportunity and Diversity at UCI. So what then are some of the common uh, cases that uh, are brought to your office, this being uh, a university setting? Is it uh, between professors and undergrads? Is it between grad students and their advisors? Uh, you know, it's... It's common for uh, professors to uh, form relationships with their grad students, and uh, I'm curious as to the kinds <laughs> of cases that uh, that you're confronted with. All of the above, all of the above. You know, what's interesting about our UCI um, 
policy and about the cases that come to my office, we, our policy reaches everybody, faculty, staff, students, volunteers, anybody who's got a connection to this institution and who is either working here or learning here or coming to use the services provided by UCI is subject to that policy and can complain under that policy. So people from all over campus uh, and the medical center can come in and say, listen, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable in my classroom, on my team, when I go to the library or when I work in the lab and I want some help getting it to stop. Um, it's important for your listeners to know that you can get informal help here. Not everything has to be a formal uh, investigative written complaint. Uh, we, get, we spend about 75% of our time helping people work stuff out on the early end, preventative medicine. Let's try to get people talking to each other or maybe we'll have a conversation on somebody else's behalf. Maybe we'll go in and do a little bit of training, but we're really trying to get people to recognize what's happening way before we rise to the level of a sexual harassment policy violation. We here at KUCI have had uh, sexual harassment training workshops, and uh, I think that's important because we often hear the tagline, in the workplace, affixed to sexual harassment, sexual, harass sexual harassment in the workplace. And yet on uh, college campuses, you've got tons of student clubs, volunteer groups, uh, whether it's an athletic team or, or, you know, I don't know, an ice cream social, as silly as that. So whatever it is, right? The residence halls. <laughs> the residence halls, right. The, the RAs versus so forth. So, uh, you know, I've never been to an ice cream social in my life. I don't know why I just said that, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so how does, if, if the power dynamic is, is uh, and the unwanted aspect are such uh, important uh, defining characteristics of sexual harassment, how does that translate into uh, social settings that are uh, volunteer-based? Well, let me, I want to back up just one second and suggest um, that we don't always need a power dynamic. In fact, sexual harassment happens between people of equal power uh, and between people of the same sex, different sex, the same gender uh, identity, different gender identity, the same sexual orientation. So it's really not based on who the players are all the time. Anybody can harass anybody. I like to say it's equal opportunity harassment. So that, that can happen and it does happen. Right. So there could be a lack of the power differential, could but, be. but still the, the unwanted Absolutely. gestures that create a hostile either work environment or learning environment. Learning environment or right. And we would interpret that learning environment pretty broadly. I would say as you're doing uh, an activity here on our UCI campus, maybe you're participating in a student organization or club, that's part of your academic environment. Uh, and so all of these kinds of um, services and policies apply to you in those settings. And you know, another common misperception about sexual harassment and our policy here at UCI is that it applies to me when I'm in class, or it applies to me when I'm in the lab, but maybe not when I'm meeting with my TA over at... Uh, Diedrichs or Starbucks or Steelhead. Um, and that's not true. As long as you're on university-related business, even if you're actually across the street or maybe you're um, taking a team trip somewhere or your club's gone off on a, an event, those, those places are covered places too. And your conduct uh, is reachable at those places too. So it's important to remember that. So we were talking uh, during the, the intro about the fact that, I mean, Liberals, conservatives, left, right of the political spectrum, you hear sexual harassment and there's often snickering. You know, we were talking about there was a Saturday Night Live skit 
several years back where it was a, a college couple and the guy had to ask for expressed verbal consent for everything. Do I have permission to open the door for you? Do I have permission to, you know, hold your hand? Do I have permission? And so forth. Um, and I remember a few years back, The Simpsons did a, a terrific episode on, on sexual harassment where uh, Homer was um, uh, trying to steal candy from the pocket of the babysitter. <laughs> and uh, she turned around and saw him looking like he was groping her. And uh, so it doesn't matter what the situation, what the political persuasion, people seem to think that it's no big deal that women should just, you know, third wave feminism, take charge of... Uh, you know, their identities and their voices. And, of course, that also adds to the stereotype that sexual harassment only occurs with, with female victims. So let's just be sure we clarify all this. What are the real harms caused uh, by sexual harassment, whether they're emotional, whether they're financial, losing a job, dropping out of school? Um, and, and can we dispel the myth that sexual harassment is only something that happens to females between gender? Absolutely. Okay. Let me first dispel that myth for you right there. Um, our national statistics from the EEOC suggest that the number of complaints brought by men is on the rise. Um, I think it's up in the neighborhood of 16% of complaints that they receive are from men. Sometimes that's men complaining about women. Sometimes that's men complaining about other men. Um, we've seen an increase in the number of cases that men bring. I think when the Supreme Court made clear, hey, listen, anybody can bring this complaint. You don't have to be subordinate and you don't have to be a woman. Um, it can be a man against a man, a woman against a woman, uh, and uh, all the various uh, other ways to do that. Um, so I think that we're seeing the, the people who bring sexual harassment complaints um, become more equal, if you will. We're seeing the people who are complained about also become more equal. More women are complained about. Um, as these numbers change. Uh, in terms of students, you know, I think one really interesting that thing that's happening on our campus and on campuses across America is that the AAU, the American Association of University Women, published a report in 2005 that suggested that somewhere in the neighborhood of um, two-thirds of college students think they've experienced an incident of sexual harassment. Less than 10% of them reported it. So we have this really large number of folks who think that they've had some kind of sexual harassment experience, yet haven't gone anywhere to get some help. And that's troubling. I think that's the, the, the key place for me and for the fabulous staff in my office to really focus on. One of the things that we're doing right now is to try to reach out to students in some unusual ways. Um, we can have what I call the sexual harassment party or program, and people aren't going to come. That doesn't sound exciting. That's not a way to spend your Wednesday night usually. And so we try to get to folks in other ways. Go see the students who live in the residence halls as part of a program that their RA or their HA is doing. Go see TAs when they're first becoming TAs and learning about what that means. Um, maybe uh, the table tent uh, program that we've had going around that hopefully people have seen in a lot of their dining halls. We've been putting table tents with interesting little tidbits and graphics on there to help people understand that there is some place you can go and talk about these issues without filing a, a big formal complaint, unless you want to. Um, when people don't do that, when they don't get out there and get themselves help and they put up with things, they tend to let it go. They think, you know, I'll just, I'll just put up with this, I'll be out of the class soon, or I'll just um, move out of this residence hall next quarter, or, uh, you know, maybe I can switch sections with somebody else. Um, and when they do that, it doesn't tend to get better. It actually tends to get worse because the person who's doing what they're doing or the people who are doing what they're doing don't get the message. 
and they do it again, or they do it to somebody else, and we, we end up with what I call, you know, frequent flyer behavior. Um, and that has a real emotional cost, it has a social cost, it has a cost to all of us who live and work here, um, because we've got folks in our midst who aren't getting the message, and they're not getting it clearly. So I want to really encourage, especially students, to, to get the assistance they need. We have folks on my staff who are there, you know, virtually all business hours to take calls, to have people walk in, just to, to consult. So a student comes to you and uh, has a, a concern. Uh, the student feels that, uh, for simplicity purposes, let's just make it a she, uh, that she ha- is being harassed by a grad graduate uh, TA or by a, uh, a professor. Um, how do you begin to... Uh, investigate mm-hmm. and figure out precisely what's going on? What's the process? You know, the first thing that we'll probably do is explain a little bit about what our office does. We're going to talk about the sexual harassment policy, explain what that says. We're going to talk a little bit about the discrimination policy or the non-discrimination policy, explain what that says. We're going to talk with her about what her options are. You know, does she want to complain formally? Does she real, has she been putting up with this for the last year and a half and she really wants to uh, file a formal complaint and have this person's conduct investigated and have a finding? of either a policy violation or not, um, or is she just looking for help? Listen, I just want to get this to stop. 75% of the time, that's the case. So we'll talk about what she might be comfortable with. Does she want to confront this person herself? Sometimes she says, yeah, I just need the words. I need somebody to help script it out or maybe role play with me, and we'll do that. She might say, you know, I really, uh, I, I really am not comfortable doing that. Could you do that for me? And so we might talk a little bit further about what the conduct is, what exactly has happened, how much of her identity and the specific uh, information she's shared with us we can share back with the person we're going to talk with. It's much, uh, much easier to have a conversation where we're able to say, hey, uh, Carrie was in here and she told me that, you know, when you do thus and so, it makes her really uncomfortable and I need you to understand how that could make someone feel and I need you to understand that if you were to continue doing this and she were to complain, where you could end up. Uh, Carrie might come in and say, and I'm just giving a name to your person. This, of course, does not represent anybody who's ever been in my office. It's a made-up example. Uh, I've never even heard of someone named Carrie. Yeah, good, so we're clear. (laughs) Uh, Carrie might also say, you know, I'm afraid that this TA or this professor is going to hold it against me. I really don't want to be identified. And so we might be able to have a conversation with the TA or professor in which we don't identify Carrie at all, Um, especially if the conduct is something that the TA or the professor might be doing to everybody, like making sexual jokes in the classroom or sending sexual jokes on email. Uh, little taglines at the end of a otherwise university-related email, you know, maybe class assignments or grades or something like that that is getting sent out to a listserv, but then there's some sexual content in it. Um, so we can have a conversation with them about that without ever identifying Carrie. And so to the best of our ability, we might try to do that. But also do some education for maybe that, the group of TAs in that department. And so nobody ever knows that they were identified. And we'll get to that in uh, just a moment. I want to remind listeners to tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're talking about sexual harassment uh, at university settings. Um, what kind of protections are there for those who are uh, accused of sexual harassment? For uh, full disclosure, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a little personal story. Uh, listeners probably know I, uh, I'm a professor at uh, an area university, and uh, after a, a female student received a failing grade on one of her term papers, she filed uh, a complaint against me, claiming that I had sexually harassed her. 
uh, the incident was investigated. The university knew that she wasn't telling the truth. In fact, she had a long history of of such behavior whenever she didn't get uh, a proper grade. Uh, I had never had any other complaint filed against me, and fortunately, uh, not only was I completely exonerated, but a uh, a file a letter was placed in my file uh, claiming that I was very cooperative during the investigation. But needless to say, uh, I'm a young man. I'm close to the age that of the uh, accuser. There are some very real concerns for those who are being investigated as well. Uh, so uh, without diminishing the very real harm caused by sexual harassment, how does the UCI office look out for the rights of untenured, you know, brand new, young, naive professors who are trying to maybe change the, the way you interact with students and be more egalitarian? Mm -hmm. Great question. And one that I think is on the minds of anybody no matter who they are or where they are in, at the institution, who is accused of sexual harassment or, or discrimination, because those complaints come to my office as well. Um, let, me, let me explain that my office is not an advocacy office. We are a neutral office. We're a fact-finding office. So someone comes in to get assistance, um, and one of, the, one of the things that we might do is investigate a complaint of sexual harassment. Um, they would file a formal complaint. The, we call the person who's accused the respondent, so the respondent would always get a copy of that complaint. So there's no, there's no tricks, there's no, we're not holding anything back. We immediately contact the person who's been accused, give them a copy of the written complaint so they can see exactly what's been said, ask them to come in and meet with us, respond to uh, the complaint as best they can. Um, we talk to anybody they want us to talk to. We talk to witnesses from, from both parties, both individuals, anybody else who we think might have relevant information. Um, I have four highly trained investigators who do this investigative work, and so they've got a really um, very good um, background and training in making determinations and credibility assessments as well as just basic investigative work. Um, they make a factual finding first. They decide what actually happened. They'll generally then uh, sit down with the parties and say, listen, I'm, I'm finding this. Is there anything else you want to tell me about that might help me understand better what happened? So it's, it's generally a back-and-forth process where we're working with both the complainant and the respondent to understand. Um, both the complainant and the respondent will have a copy of policies and procedures that we use so it's really clear to them what's happening. They're kept informed of what's happening. Um, after we make our factual finding, we look at the factual finding and determine, was the policy violated? And sometimes, it, even if everything, everything that was alleged is true, it still doesn't violate our sexual harassment policy. Sometimes it does. We'll then immediately write a report and provide it to the relevant uh, supervisor, judicial affairs director, whomever can take appropriate action if there is a policy violation. Uh, in terms of what can respondents do when they're accused of sexual harassment to kind of uh, protect themselves or keep clear, one thing that I suggest is that you know, they look really closely at what the allegations are. They think about, recall to the best of their ability what was happening during that time, anything that might be relevant. Um, by the way, this person failed my class or this person had asked me for an extension that I hadn't granted, and so I think they were upset about this. Anything that they think is relevant. I recommend that they, um, to the best of their ability, meet with us, provide their full answer. Um, sometimes people think, well, if I just don't say anything, it's better, and that's not the case. Um, that you provide whatever witnesses you think will be useful to us. And remember that the investigator is not there on behalf of the complainant. The investigator is really there to find out what happened.
And I, I also think it's important to, for the accused to know that just because someone has uh, said that they feel uncomfortable around you, it doesn't mean that they're saying that anything you did is deliberate. So I was actually quite shocked that a lot of the, the playfulness that, that I incorporate into, into my class, I, I say I end every, every lecture saying, you know, you guys need to study, you need to do well because I love each and every one of you. And on the complaint was, you know, you, you, you profess your love publicly. And I thought, well, wow, I don't know how that could be <laughs> miscon. But the point is still, I think, important that people can feel uncomfortable. And it doesn't mean that you're an ogre, that you're a womanizer, that you're... It just means someone is having a difficulty communicating that they're not quite comfortable with your sense of humor or with your... So I think... Everyone needs to take a deep breath and because you, there could be young professors who think, oh my gosh, my career is over. And it's really a learning process, I think, for all, for all parties involved. It can be. And I recommend if people are feeling, you know, their anxiety goes way up when they get that, that letter or that call, um, to take a deep breath. That's true. And then to call and talk with either me or one of my staff about it and, you know, kind of get a handle on what's this going to look like. Who's going to know? That's another big question people have is, wow, are you telling my chair? Are you telling my boss? Are you telling my mom? You know, who are you telling? And so we work really hard to be clear about here are the people who are going to know at this point. Here are the people who are going to know at the end. Um, if there is a policy violation, here's the, ramif you know, the possible ramifications um, so that people can make wise decisions from the front end and they can get a picture of what's happening. Most people just really want to know what's going to happen next. Right. Well, in the time we have left, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Tell our listeners about the campaign, and maybe you could uh, provide some examples of uh, icebreakers or workshop things that uh, how one teaches sexual <laughs> harassment awareness. So if there's uh, a club leader who's listening or there's a professor who's listening, um, tell us about the campaign, first of all. And uh, I'm holding one of the uh, little tabletop... Uh, uh, promotional items, and then tell us maybe, you know, walk us through one of the workshops if you can. Okay. Well, you know, we offer actually a number of different workshops in OEOD. We offer uh, sexual harassment prevention workshops, and we have them tailored for a variety of groups. Um, we've just about finished our um, state law required supervisor training. So as many of the faculty or staff supervisors who are listening might know, the state of California requires all uh, supervisors to get two hours of sexual harassment prevention training. And so that was for our campus to do at the end of last year. If they haven't completed it yet, they still have an opportunity at the end of this month, I think the 31st, to, to jump into a live workshop. Those two hours for supervisors. Uh, we also do a large number of just unit training. We'll come into a department or into a class or into a residence hall and do a program tailored specifically for them. Um, so these are all, I'm talking about live, in-person workshops. When we go in into a residence hall or even sometimes in our work with TAs or RAs, um, we try to make it fun. Nobody wants to come to just hear a lecture, so we use a lot of games. Um, we try to play off some of the popular games that might be on TV, uh, whether it's uh, we had for a long time running a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire game. We used to play and you know, create teams and do some fun questions and back and forth. Um, we recently have added some technology to our training tools, so we have the ability for people to do some polling in the audience where people can answer questions uh, anonymously and we can see kind of how the group really feels about a particular issue or topic or how they might act on a particular case if they were asked to do something. Um, so we've added that as an interesting training component and we're rolling that out. Um, 
when we go in and talk with um, staff and with students, we often use video clips. So some of the video clips that you mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of great TV, whether it's Saturday Night Live or The Simpsons, um, Ally McBeal, uh, The Office. There are just, there's a number of shows and movies that have this as a topic. And so it's really fun to kind of bring those out and talk about them as examples. You know, and I have to interject because um, one of the things that I'm so struck by is how uh, uh, flippant... Uh, television shows that take place in a, in a, in a occupational setting are about sexual harassment. Uh, I watch the show house and yet I am just appalled at the level of sexual harassment that goes on granted in this fictional program, but anyone watching this who wouldn't know what qualifies as sexual harassment would think that this is acceptable behavior. Uh, you know, similarly with, with, I mean, just, just about any show there, it's all office romance, it's all sexual innuendo, and it's just taken for granted. And because that's out there in the media and because that's become so kind of regular for us as, uh, as American TV watchers and movie watchers, um, I think that that's coloring what's happening in our workplace. So it is real important to take those examples, I think, and talk about them and say, hey, wow, let's think about this. If this were to happen in your day tomorrow... How would that make you feel? What would you do about it? If it was reported to you, if you're the supervisor, what would you do? If you were in charge of the student club and you were on this trip and that happened, what would you, how would you handle it? Um, how can you confront, stop, correct that behavior amongst your peers without feeling like a heavy? So we do that. We play around with that. We make these uh, workshops as useful as we can and as enjoyable as we can um, using some of that maybe flippant, maybe all too common uh, media that we see. And what kind of responses uh, do you get from uh, from students, from faculty? I mean, I could just imagine, uh, you know, universities tend to be uh, an all-boys club. You know, there's the, at least they used to be. And, uh, you know, someone who's been teaching here for umpteen years suddenly getting lectured about sexual harassment. So is there that kind of generational concern as well? Oh, you know, I would say that this new law that I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, California AB 1825, that requires two hours of sexual harassment prevention training for all supervisors in the state, um, is really uh, exceptional. It's the first time uh, in the University of California that we've required faculty to take training, to take education. Um, our faculty are highly educated. They're experts in their field. Nobody tells them what to do in lots of areas. So to have the University of California say, you will do this for two hours, created some, um, some uh, unhappiness. Um, but most people, you know, really view it as, well, you know, it's state law. There's got to be a reason for it. I'm, I'm an educational expert. I'm here to learn, to do research, to teach. So if somebody can share something with me that might be useful to what I do, you know, I'll take what I can get from it. So for the most part, most of the people in that room are there to participate and learn and do what they can. Um, there's always a couple hecklers in the back, and that's fine because I think that's part of the process. That's part of what we do in those workshops is let people get out what they're feeling about sexual harassment or about the policies or about you know consensual relationships rules uh, that we have um, so that they can, they can talk with their peers about it and they can hear from the experts what goes on their campus and what doesn't. And uh, in the time we have left, where can listeners turn for more information? Could you give out all the contact info uh, for your office and, uh, 
any last reassuring words? And uh, where can people go to get, if, if there are uh, students listening who want to pick up some of this uh, information, uh, pamphlets, brochures, or want to schedule one of these uh, workshops, where do they go? You can, you can contact us in a variety of ways. You can first, you can jump on the web, www.sho.uci.edu. That SHO stands for Sexual Harassment Officer. That'll get you to uh, a web page that's going to give you some phone numbers, like 949-824-5594. If you really want to talk anonymously to somebody, you can call to a phone that rings on my desk and is answered only by me, 949-824-7037. That's an anonymous hotline if people just want to talk to somebody. You can also call that main number I gave you a few minutes ago and just talk to somebody as well. You can walk in the door. We're at 4500 Berkeley Place. It's over on the corner of Piera and... West Peltison. Uh, we're on the fourth floor. We've got a large office suite. There are four folks there, plus myself, who take uh, anybody who walks in and just wants to talk or maybe explore some options or pick up material or plan a workshop. We're happy to plan workshops around whatever uh, your needs are. So, for instance, if you're a student group and you only meet on Wednesday nights at 7.30, we can work that out. We can come see you. We can bring some videos or some games. We can chat a little bit about how to make your work group uh, be more cohesive or work well together. And they're actually quite uh, educational and, and uh, for lack of a better word, entertaining. I mean, they really are because you also learn, like, you, you know, all the do's and don'ts. You think, wow, you know. I mean, you talked about how uh, educated professors are, and yet uh, I, I think it's safe to say that edu- educators are often too overly educated that they lack certain social skills and social <laughs> graces. So I'll be the first to admit that. So, uh Anyway, I uh, want to encourage listeners, again, the website is www.sho.uci.edu, and uh, do check out the website, and uh, I uh, definitely want to thank you, Kirsten Kwanbeck, for uh, joining us this morning, and uh, we'll have to have you back again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, great, great stuff. We're going to have a whole stack of information here at KUCI to make sure that we are uh, complying with uh, creating a nice, welcoming community environment for a community and university radio station. So, uh, Kirsten, thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. Thank you.